These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what the book of John is all about. That we would not just see Jesus, that we would not just listen to Jesus, but that we would understand him and believe in him. And then once we believed in him, that we would live life in his name. Jesus has been introduced to us by John. We're in John chapter 9. I'd invite you to turn there as we continue in this series going through the book of John. But we've seen his identity. We've seen his identity that to know Jesus was to know God. To listen to Jesus was to listen to the very words of God. To trust Jesus, you trusted God. To love him, you loved God. To reject him, you rejected God. And to live following him, you would live following God. He claimed very clearly to be God. As we come up on John chapter 9, perhaps one of his greatest statements of identity is in the last two verses of chapter 8, where he said to, to the Pharisees who were questioning him about his identity, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Those were huge statements. He wasn't just saying I was there with Abraham, like you all were kind of represented by Abraham. No, he said, I am. And that, that they jumped all the way back to the time that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, bush and said, tell them that I am has sent you to rescue them out of Egypt. They knew exactly what he meant. We kind of have to do an archaeological expedition in our Bibles to find out what he meant. But there they knew it. They realized he's saying he's God. And they picked up stones, the scripture says, and they wanted to to stone him for blasphemy. But Jesus hides himself away and exits the scene. We've seen his identity. We've seen the ability of Jesus. We've seen him just go, fill up those stone water jars, fill them up and bring them back. And instantly they turn into wine. He turns the water into wine at the wedding. He tells a man whose son is on his deathbed, miles away from where Jesus and he meet. He says, go and, and, and your son is healed. And immediately he took Jesus at his word. And at that very moment that Jesus said, your son is healed, his son was healed. We see his ability. And we also see his sovereignty, his rule over all. Last week, we asked the question, what do you do when Jesus doesn't do what you want him to do? And we saw that as Jesus presented himself, there were three responses to his identity and his ability in people's lives. Some walked away, some worshiped him, and some warred against him. And that is our response. That's the response of Jesus today. Some walk away when they really understand who he is. And then he's not all about their little agenda, their little vision for their lives. Some worship him. They realize, who else do I have? You're the only one who gives eternal life. And others are out to destroy him, who wage war against them. This morning, we're going to be taking a look into that very difficult subject to get to know Jesus even deeper in that area of explaining what suffering is all about. John engages suffering in his presentation of Christ. He's a, he presents a very real, personal, interactive intersection with the person the, who is fully man and fully God, Jesus the Christ. And we need to enter this topic when we go into it with humility. Because we can't, none of us can say, this is why you're going through this. None of us can do that. And Christians have given 
kind of overused statements when we come to suffering. And sometimes we can come across really in an arrogant way. And we need to come with this in a humble heart. We need to have respect for the word and understand what God's word is telling us today and not just think we know, make the word say things that we wanted to say. We need to let the word and Jesus speak through the word. And then we need to do it with compassion in our hearts. As we look at the suffering of this world, we need to be compassionate. And I'm confident that as we do this, as we're humble with the Lord, as we have a respect for the word and as we're compassionate in our hearts, Jesus will meet with us this morning and he will comfort us just like he did in this passage. Well, let's start with John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's unpack this. Because one thing that Jesus reveals, one thing that John shows us, is that suffering, suffering um, results in questions. Questions about purpose. Take a look at this. The disciples are looking and they ask the question, Rabbi, which means, hey, explain this one to us. We don't understand this. We don't understand suffering. And they asked the question, who's responsible for this man being born blind? They went, first of all, personal. And they said, did he sin? Was he going to sin? Did he sin in the womb? Explain this. Why does this happen to someone? Why does someone have to suffer? Was it his sin? Was he personally responsible? Which would result in shame and guilt. And that you did something wrong. The second the uh, question had to deal with, or was it with his parents? Was it parental? Was it something his parents did? Are there parental consequences? Now, let's just stop before we go further. Are there things that parents can contribute to this? And, you know, every time I counsel with a couple who have a child who's less than perfect, they ask the question, what happened here? Was this our fault? And those are all questions that, that are normal and natural and that we need to engage. I don't think we need to stuff those things because God wants to reveal himself in those environments. It's okay to ask those questions. But Jesus is saying, neither. I've seen children who were born drug addicts because their mother was a drug addict and they passed that on to the baby and you had to wean the child off of drugs. That was something that a mother in her sin passed on to her baby. Not here. Not here. I've seen people who resulted in in having consequences where they have suffered due to decisions that they've made to live selfishly, to live without thinking the rules applied to them. But that's not the case here. Jesus sees suffering and he says, we can't explain that one. It's not, it's not, his fault, and it's not his parents' fault. But the questions, again, I think are important to ask because through questions, we can grow deeper in our understanding and and in our embracing of suffering, which Jesus is calling us to do. We recognize that something is not as it should be. This is a good thing because in us is created 
As God has crafted us, he's created us with an image, his image in us. And that image is to have more of him. That image is to have a life of perfection, to have a life without hurt and pain and suffering. It's a life to go back to the garden when God originally created it. And he had fashioned us for himself and for each other, to be whole with him in ourselves and with the world around us. And Genesis 3 came in, and due to the fall of sin, sin rules on this earth. And we are products of a broken, messed up world under the curse. Jesus Christ is coming to reverse the curse. That is his plan and the kingdom is coming and he's showing, he's revealing himself that even as he goes to a child affected and a man affected by the curse, the curse will not get the last word. Jesus will reign. And he says, these things have happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus points to why this happens. Why this happens. And there are several ways for us to process this, why it happens. Our world processes suffering in that it's pointless. It's pointless. There's no purpose in suffering. It's all chance. It's all randomness. There is no order. There is no ultimate authority. There is no ultimate meaning. To quote the famous philosopher and theologian, Kenny Rogers, when he says, you got to know when to hold them. No one to fold him, no one to walk away and no one to run. And his crescendo in that philosophy is the best that you can hope for is to die in your sleep. In other words, nothing is leading to anything. You just got to deal the cards that have been dealt by something out there. And we don't want to call it, we don't want to call it anything personal. We just want to put it out there that these things happen. You just got, this is life. Get used to it. There's no purpose. And we serenade ourselves with overused statements of I'm sorry when this happens to you or Michael Bolton lyrics. But we don't have much beyond that when everything is pointless. Secondly, people view suffering as punishment. It's how the disciples tried to process it. Was it his sins or his parents? And the view uh, shared by most religious systems in our world today view the picture that punishment is the primary motivator for worship. So don't mess up. Don't tick off the gods because they're out to get you and they're just waiting for you to mess up. And when you mess up, whap with a cold, whap with cancer, whap with something. And so we try, when we, when we go with this perspective of suffering, when, when we realize we're driving 75 in the construction zone on Highway 70, and it's actually 60, then we try to trace it back to that C we got on that biology exam on Wednesday. And why did this happen? Because God's out there to get me. And punishment is a lousy motivator for you to willingly give your heart to God. It's not punishment. And you know what? If my life is all about me not ticking God off, then I don't learn to love him. I just learn to look over my back and question, is this happening because he's out to get me? And let's just be honest. We've all ticked off God enough that if he wanted to, he could cough and we'd all be obliterated. Good. And that's why the Christian has to look somewhere else than pointlessness and punishment. The Christian must look to the cross. Because it was on the cross 
where everything, instead of pointless, moves right to the point that on the cross, Jesus took my punishment for everything that I ticked off God with. It was at the cross where Jesus took my pain and he suffered for me. And because he was willing to suffer, the works of God were displayed through him. And I have salvation. I have grace. God is no longer angry at me. He took it out. He was the only one who could die for me. You could die for me, and it would be a heroic act, but you could not save me. Only Jesus could do that on the cross. And Jesus presents that plan for us. It's not pointless. It's not punishment. It's providential. It's this picture that Jesus crafts for us here. He said, these things have happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he was pointing us that the purpose of suffering is to reveal the power and the glory of God. We see suffering as limiting, dehumanizing, harsh, painful, with stark realities, and at times overwhelming. But Jesus says, do not let the curse get the final sentence in our lives. Do not let the curse and the results of the curse get that final word. He says, no, this has happened. And and that's why he just explodes our mind here for a second. Follow with me. He's saying... That whatever situation you're in, if it's caused by your sin or not caused by your sin, that everything right now is at the point that these things have happened so that now the works of God can be displayed in you. What will you do with suffering right now? Will you use it as a platform to show and reflect the power of God? Or will you walk away? Or will you war against Him? That's what Jesus is calling us into. And so this is what Jesus does. Look at verse four. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. This was awesome. You know, in a lot of the miracles that we've seen, this is now the sixth sign of Jesus's identity of who he is and his ability of what he's done. We've seen him just say, go fill up the water jugs. We've, we've seen him um, just say, go, your son is healed. We've seen him say, pass out the food. And 5,000 people were filled up to, you know, the gills over. I mean, they had 12 doggy bags left over. He, he satisfied them. We've seen him calm storms just by his, his voice. We've seen him have a man just stand up who is crippled, but here he does something. He goes down, he picks up dust, and he spits, and he rubs it onto the guy's eyes. What's he doing? Why does he do that? Could it be that this sign is, again, connecting us all the way back to John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the Creator who formed us out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into humanity. Jesus was saying, I am the one who crafted you and created you, whose plan is not over, whose story I'm inviting you back into. Just of, I'm going to make you into a new recreation. And what does this guy do? He goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. 
Well, Jesus does this, and not only are there questions around suffering, we would think there would be great celebration, but instead of great celebration, there was controversy. There's controversy around the works of Jesus. And the first group that we see is there are in verse 8. They're the neighbors. The neighbors are this guy who saw this kid. They grew up with this kid. They saw him around, and all of a sudden, this guy's seeing. Look what it says here. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. I'm the man. It's the whole picture. This healing as it caused controversy. Uh, it was interpreted in different ways. So they said to him in verse 10, this is how, uh, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus. He made mud and he anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Like this. See, this first group of people who responded in the controversy were seekers. They wanted to know, who's this guy? Is this the same guy? Yes, he is the same guy. I'm he, he says. Then how did this happen? Well, a man named Jesus came and he said, He anointed my eyes. He said, go wash. And when I did, I received my sight. Well, where is he? They're looking for him. Do you realize this? Jesus is sharing something here. Do you realize that when your life is reflecting the power and the works of God through suffering, that God will use that as a platform for seekers to find him? Do you realize that? We despise it. What's the purpose? It's pointless. God says, I will, I waste nothing. Nothing. I'm going to use this. And here the seekers are going, how, why, who, where, how do we get him? And, and seekers, seekers, their goal is to find. There was another group, not just seekers. There were cynics. Look at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Let's pause here. Tracing all the way back to John chapter 7, verse 1. It said, Jesus did no longer went to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. These were the people who were no longer open to him. They were evil. They were out to kill the truth. They were out to kill him. And when the identity and the abilities and the sovereignty of God appeared in the person of Christ. What did these people do? Cynics resulted in disbelief, in fear, in division. What they did is, okay, well, okay, well, he, he healed the guy on a Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He's a sinner. Boom. Instead of celebration, instead of all the times when, when they have tried to nitpick Jesus on on helping people on the Sabbath, and he would ultimately say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Matter of fact, I am God. Worship me on the Sabbath. Watch my works on the Sabbath. They were saying, no, no, no. It's one of our top ten. And God gave us one of the top tens. He'd never do that. And so instead of celebrating, cynics went passive, and they tried to poke fun. 
and they tried to call him out on that. He didn't fit. Jesus didn't fit into their religion. Jesus didn't fit into their little plan where they controlled all the rules and they had power and position over all the people. They formed a huge bureaucracy that Jesus would confront because they lost their heart. They lost their passion for God and they were, they were just controlled by rules and regulation and punishment. Jesus would, would address the question of his disciples in the lives of the Pharisees. You think I'm all about punishment. I'm here to reflect the works of God. And you know what? Some of us are cynics when we look at Jesus and we look at the realities of suffering. Some of us look from afar and see suffering and we just go, oh, I just don't have a concept of how a loving God could allow that in someone's life. It just, they didn't, they didn't do anything to deserve that. And we check out and we go passive and we just look and we throw stones from a distance. Others of us are just plain frustrated. Our lives have been hard. It's been difficult. We don't understand it. And it's just easier for us just not to think that there's a personal God behind it. We check out. And all I have to say is we have no resources then for dealing with pain and suffering. We just check out and we say, oh, that's how it is. Let's just be depressed. Let's just, let's just, let's, let's just deal with it. And we don't have any resources. We dead end our resources in suffering when we become cynical. I used to think cynicism was a a gift of the Holy Spirit in my life. It was not. It was not. It's driven me more towards disbelief, towards um, insecurity, towards uh, defensiveness. And I become like the Pharisee when, when I become cynical. And I'm not a man of faith. And neither are you when you turn cynical in anything. So Jesus has a much better way for us. It's a much grander vision, especially in the realm of suffering, than to make us cynical. The result is no one celebrates, though, when we're cynical. No one's comforted. No one finds what they are seeking with a cynic. They just get more of what they want. The cynic gets more of what they want. Doubt, disbelief, division, a life under their control, power, position. We're called to live beyond that. Well, we get the authentic. We get the seeker, we get the cynic, and we get the believer. We get the believer in this man because the cynics put him out of the out of the synagogue, which means because he proclaimed that Christ was the Messiah, he they they uh, they not just said you can't work, you can't um, you, you can't come and worship here anymore. They just took him out. They excommunicated him. All his social structure, all his family. They said if you hang out with this guy, you're out. Jesus meets up with this man. And look what he says in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. See, this is the... This is the the quest of someone whose eyes have been opened up to the reality of who Jesus is. And it's even a play on words kind of on how it's presented to us. Because here, he just heard his voice go and wash, and he felt his hands. But now he came face to face with Jesus, 
And he said, um, do you believe, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which was a term all the way back from the book of Daniel for a predictive prophecy for the Messiah before his very eyes. And he said, yes, who is he that I might believe? And he says, you're looking at him. And the one who's speaking to you, it's his he. He says, I believe. And he worshipped him. Hey, trace with me. Look at verse 12. We see him moving from seeker to believer. When he goes, when they ask him, where is he? And he goes, I don't know. Verse 17, who is he? He goes, he's a prophet. In verse 24 to 25, when the Pharisees are saying, give glory to God, call him a sinner. Speaking of Jesus, he goes, one thing I know is though I was blind, I now see. Then verse 33, if this man, he makes this testimony, if this man were not from God, he could not, he could do nothing. Verse 36, who is he to Jesus that I might believe in him? Verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He caught it. He got it. His physical eyes were open and his spiritual eyes embraced the person and the work of Jesus because these things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. Great story. Great reality of who Jesus is. Not only are there questions with suffering and controversy around suffering, there's also conclusions when our lives intersect with Jesus in our suffering. The conclusion is this. There's several. First one is, suffering is an invitation for the power of God. Do you see what Jesus said here? He said it was neither his sins nor his parents, but these things have happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is giving, he's giving meaning to suffering. He's given purpose to suffering. And that is the heart, the cry of our souls in suffering is that we might understand why. Why? Can you see just in this man's life story, the backstory of all the question of his parents when he was born blind, all the loss of their dreams, only to have Jesus in his adult life restore his eyes to see. But not only to see objects and people and shapes and colors, but to see the Messiah, Jesus Christ. These things have happened so that the works of God might be revealed or displayed through him. Jesus comes in and he speaks. He writes the theological boat, whether it's pointlessness or punishment. And he says, no, this has happened. This has happened as a as an opportunity for the works of God to be displayed in our lives. And, and it's neither pointless or punishment. It's providential. It's God's wonderful story that he's inviting us to enter through the realm of suffering. I want to introduce you to a, a family that uh, is, is dear to our family. And it's the Troya family. Uh, there are two children in the front. Uh, Alex is the boy and Sarah is the girl. They are, uh, they, they are both in wheelchairs and they have cerebral palsy. They, um, they're twins. And uh, just talking with them, I came to meet them because my son James went two years ago to Camp Barnabas down in Missouri. And uh, they served them over a, a week. And, and uh, James at that time helped Alex eat and get dressed and use the facilities and and uh, move around, and, and I saw my son's heart deepen 
in his capacity to love through that. And uh, this past year, James also went back and formed a deep friendship with Alex. Alex came last year and stayed at our house. It was the first time Alex had had uh, ever stayed over at a friend's house in his life. And my son Jack went this year to Camp Barnabas and took care of uh, another boy with cerebral palsy who is even more extreme than these two. And Jack had to change briefs and help uh, shower and, and uh, help feed and, and uh, get dressed. And, and everything, even, even talking, took five to ten times longer than it does us. But by seeing this, we, we learn more about the love of God. When we went up there on Labor Day weekend and we spent time with the Troyes just to see how they live and we spent some time at the zoo just see how, how things our love grew and we had greater honor for them and we started realizing the blessing of suffering in their lives now if they could i would tell you that troyes, troyes would love to have their children healed immediately immediately as any loving parent would want but these people have accepted what god has allowed into their lives And the power of God has blessed my life through their children. I see a much broader view than just perfect people in my life. And I see in a brokenness, I see a deeper love of God reaching down into suffering. Because I've had the opportunity to watch and experience and form a relationship with those who are suffering. So that the works of God might be displayed now. We are assured through the scriptures that one day, just a few years from now in the realm of eternity, just a few, trust me on this. You may go, oh yeah, but many, in a hundred years, folks, those kids are going to be walking and talking with the Lord. And we will worship at that time off of the platform of suffering that God is good And that his power and his glory, that that he will get the final exclamation point of our worship. And throughout all creation, even our lives in pain, in failures, in suffering, in sin, when we finally meet Jesus, he will point us and connect the dots and he will use us as a trophy of his grace. And he says, look, look, Don with Stuba. Look at how I used him. He was blind throughout his life, but now he sees. He's a trophy of my grace. And we said, as long as we lived on earth, we saw Don with Stuba as a blind man, but now he sees us and we see Jesus. And we're going to come unglued in heaven. You are going to be a trophy of God's grace through suffering. God will show us that. Because suffering is an invitation for the power of God. Secondly, suffering is an invitation for involvement. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 4. He says, we must work for the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming. When no one can work. What's he saying? Church people, don't just ask the questions. Don't just build the theology. Get involved. Churches are excellent at crafting a theology for suffering. 
and for sovereignty, but we stink at involvement. We have got to get involved with people who are suffering. That's how we show them they are part of a greater plan. When our world rejects people for not making enough, for not being whole in their bodies enough, for not being beautiful or attractive, and we reward that one-tenth of one percent with beautiful and popularity and fame, we craft a really narrow picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're involved with suffering, we craft a really big picture of God's love and a really big providential plan of his grace and his redemption to this world. We must get involved. Jesus got involved. Jesus called his disciples to get involved. Do you know that we're involved as a church? I saw that this week. Ron Daniel, one of our church family, passed away. And there was a time when Ron um, lost consciousness in his home and the paramedics came and they gave him CPR for 15 minutes in his home, rushed him to Stormont Vale, and they performed CPR where they waited for a heart surgeon for him for two hours. And Ron passed away last Sunday evening, but uh, God spared his life for about three days. And here's what I saw happen. His wife, Susan, shows up at the hospital. His parents, Wayne and Shirley, show up at the hospital. Guess what happens? Their small group got involved. There were two small groups represented in those, in those two, people, two couples. And, and they just descended on the hospital. We had a pastor, a Pastor David went over, and we even had tech arts team that Ron served as he, he kept the audio going in, in different areas for our worship services. And the tech arts team descended. People who were connected with them didn't stay away from suffering. They, they got involved, and I saw this huddle. And it was in a huddle filled with answers of this is why this is happening. It was a huddle filled with comfort and encouragement and, and prayer and tears and suffering together. I believe God spared his life so we could love them. So they could get their minds around this loss. Just so happened that last week, uh, last weekend, there was a shooting in Topeka. And the shooter was shot himself. So he was rushed to the hospital. And the victim was shot and he was rushed to the hospital. And those two families descended on the intensive care units of Stormont Vale. And right in between was the Daniels family. And so the security guard, who is called with good reason, shows up and just stands in the middle and they observe a family grieving their child or their husband. And they see two families upset and agitated that a crime was committed. See suffering all over the place. Wayne and Shirley are tired and exhausted and they get up to go for a walk outside and they come across one of the family members of the shooter. And they said, we'd like to pray with you. Would you pray with us? And they said, of course. Catch this. In the realm of their own suffering, they were comforting others. Do you see what Jesus does when you're willing to walk with him through suffering? I could have never planned that, but I step away from those experiences and I just go, I am so honored to be a pastor of people who would, who would trust Christ through suffering and embrace it and be involved in it. 
Because God deepens us. A cynic has no resources. They have no resources for suffering. They do not allow God the joy of comforting the broken. There has got to be a better way. Suffering is an invitation for involvement. These two next two go together. Spiritual sight is the best of both worlds. Spiritual blindness equals the worst of both worlds. Jesus is saying, it's better to be blind on earth and have eyes that can see Christ. Jesus, by healing this man, didn't just heal him physically, he healed him spiritually. He got the best of both worlds. The Pharisees, on the other hand, could see objects, and they could see shapes, and they knew colors, and they knew, they knew people, but they didn't know Jesus. The picture you have here is they have the worst of both worlds. They don't know Christ in this world. They live the cynical lifestyle. And they don't know Christ and they won't know him in the next. It's the worst of both worlds. And then the final one is Jesus opens blind eyes to see and believe. Whether it's the seeker, whether it's the cynic, or whether it's the believer. He engages suffering. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. These things have happened so that the works of God might be displayed through us. Every time I've preached this this weekend, people have come up to me after, and they have said and they have shared what they're suffering with. And uh, as a pastor... It has been overwhelming. I'm exhausted. I'm going to take a really good nap this afternoon. Because um, one thing that's so beautiful about God's word is that when we talk about it and we open up and we, we apply our lives and we're willing to look at, at with, with faith towards Jesus, we're willing to believe in him. He comes and he lets us know that we're not alone. We're not alone. That he doesn't stay away and he's not, it's just not pointless and it's not punishment. It's part of his plan. And when you can take your suffering and at least trust God, you may not know why and you may not know where it's going, but where you can at least say, this is part of your plan. Don't know fully that plan yet, but I'm willing to trust. You know, you are found by your creator and he's willing to work in your life. And you're willing to look forward to how his works might possibly, even though you can't explain it, might possibly be displayed through this. When you get that, you get deep faith. And I just celebrate what God is doing in the lives of people, in your lives, if you're willing to trust him as you suffer so that his works might be displayed through you. Let's pray for a heart that's open to that. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we have come here just like the disciples had in John chapter 9 with a lot of questions about who's responsible, why do things happen to us, especially in the realm of suffering. And as we see you, there's been controversy around you. We want to find you, and we do believe in you. 
as we've looked at the conclusions about what you've t- taught us through this passage, we need, we need to engage you. We don't want to stay uh, distant, far apart. We want to be close to you. So, Lord, we accept your invitation for your power, your works to be displayed through us in suffering. We, as your church, accept your invitation for involvement in no longer asking questions, no longer watching, no longer building a theology, but building a life into coming alongside people who are suffering and to love them. No questions asked, no strings attached to love them to show them more of you. Open our eyes. It truly is the best of both worlds when we have spiritual sight. And it's only because of Jesus that we see. For it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.